Well, good morning, Abundant Life. It's great to be in the house of the Lord together. It's great to be here on this, uh, hopefully for most of you, some kind of long weekend, but it's good that we spend time always to be here in worship. And, um, you know, some weeks ago when I was praying for the topic of what really is kind of a mini-series, a two-week series called um, Jesus Calling, really asking the Lord, you know, what is it that you want us as a body to know? What is it that you want us to understand as individuals? As I was praying that and in preparation for this word, I thought of a conversation that I had many years ago. This was with a guy, when I was between blessings uh, in my 20s, I got a series of temp jobs. And at one of the temp jobs, I was just talking with one of the guys, maybe working a car show, I can't even remember what it was. But I get into a conversation with him about Jesus. And, and I'm talking to him about who he is and what he came to do for us. And uh, he seemed to be interested, and so we had a follow-up conversation a little bit later. And in that follow-up conversation, he just kind of hit me between the eyes with this. He said, in so many words, let me just stop you right there. He said, I, I know where you're going with this conversation. I know the Jesus that you want to tell me about. I believed in him at one time in my own life. But not too long ago, a guy got a hold of me and with, showed me kind of his version of the scriptures and gave me some different philosophical elements and arguments that I'd never considered. And the combination of that, excuse me, sort of uh, difference in scripture and of the philosophy caused my faith that you're trying to share with me to be shattered. And I don't believe as you believe. And I was stunned. It was the first time in my life that I'd actually heard somebody just say, hey, I know what you believe, and I used to believe it, but I'm rejecting that. And that was the end of our contact. That was the end of our conversation. I don't know if any of you have been in a situation like that, but it is, it is hard to receive that. It is hard to hear that. As a pastor, now it even just grieves me to think about that. And it's with that pastor's heart that Paul is writing the Colossian church because he has found that even though they received the gospel with great enthusiasm and they saw the work of the Lord being manifest in their lives as a body and as individuals, different philosophies had crept in. Different ideas had started to gain traction. Some of the ways that the world, they're in this Greco-Roman world at the time that said, hey, anything goes. However you want to live, you live. Whatever you want to do, you do. Whatever belief you want to believe, we've got a God for it because we're polytheistic. And that was starting to work on this fledgling new church, starting to, to mold them in the wrong way, starting to get them off track. And Paul's writing the Colossians to say, wait a minute, here is the way to go. This is the true gospel that Jesus has given, and we want you to know that. And so I thought, you know, as I think about that, I think of the, the age in which we live, the times in which we're now living out our faith in Christ. And I say, Lord, the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. There's all kinds of alternative philosophies and ideas about what you should be doing, what the church should be doing, this idea that maybe God's been replaced by science and technology. That was okay for a few centuries ago before we had all this figured out, but now we got it figured out. And we need to come against that and to have a good response, not in any kind of condemning way, but in a way that just is thoughtful, engaging, and most importantly, is truthful because it depends on Jesus Christ. 
And so we're talking in these next two weeks about Jesus calling. How do we hear his voice above all the others? Today we'll spend some time unpacking a couple things about what Jesus wants us to know and what he wants us to receive. And then next week we'll talk about the supremacy of Christ because if you know Colossians, and we're just going to be in the first chapter over these next two weeks, it talks about the supremacy of Christ. He's the creator of all. We're going to save that for next week. This week, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 1. We're going to read the first 14 verses, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, I'm getting a little crackle on this microphone. Uh, my technology abilities have uh, long since, uh, I've exceeded them already trying to adjust this, so you're just going to have to bear with me. Okay, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 1, going to verse 14. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that, was, that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and you, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. I said that the Lord wants us, there's something he wants us to know and that there's something that he wants us to receive. What does he want us to know? If you look at that, let's just return briefly to verses three to five. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. You know, this is Paul being standard Paul. If you read his epistles, he always starts with a, a greeting, some kind of welcome, some kind of, hey, I'm just thankful that God has created you guys as a church, and then he commends them for something that he's heard about. In this case, it's their faith in Jesus Christ, and it's their love for all the saints. So you're kind of thinking, okay, that's, that's how Paul opens up his letter. That's fine. Um, and, and then he goes on to verse five. He says, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. So Paul is saying, I'm thankful to God for you, thankful for what I'm seeing. And that verse five though is really interesting. A faith and love that spring from the hope of the gospel that is in heaven for you. 
What, what is Paul saying? If, if we don't kind of slow down and pause there, we can, get, we can miss what he's actually trying to share with us. What he's saying is somewhat mind-blowing, at least I hope it is, it was to me when I read it, and it is this. What he wants us to know is that the hope that God has in heaven is meant to be a huge motivator for how we live our lives in Jesus Christ here on earth. It's a motivator for the fact that we continue and persevere in our faith in Jesus Christ, and it motivates us to love and express love for all the saints. Now, Paul just sort of mentions that almost in passing, but I want us to spend some time this morning kind of unpacking it, because I think the Lord wants us to know that this hope that we have stored up for us in heaven is to inspire us, is to fire us up, is to make us the people that he's designed us to be. So if we're going to do that in our own lives, if we're going to do that as a church, we should really understand what it means to have that hope. When scripture speaks of hope, what is scripture talking about? That's a really good question. I'm glad, glad you asked that. Think of hope just in general. How does hope work in our lives? Hope for, when, when you have hope in something, it's a positive. It's a blessing. You know, I want a promotion or I want, um, you know, this achievement or this attainment. And it's usually the stronger, the, the more we want it, the stronger that hope is going to be. It's going to motivate our thinking. It's going to galvanize our energy. It's going to cause us to make plans and to take steps to achieve that. Athletes have this. They have hope. There's a Wimbledon tennis match going on right now. And they have the hope, everybody who's in there, and they're all getting winnowed down, but each of them is going there with the hope of becoming the champion. Now, I actually personally don't relate to tennis too much. Uh, maybe some of you don't either. What, what is well, the first time you're in touch in your life with some intense hope? Maybe it was when you were in junior high school. And on the first day of class, you saw her in your class and you thought, wow, she is for me. This is how junior high kids think. Right? So I hope, and I, I hope I can start to talk to her. I hope there's a connection that we can make. I wonder if she'll want to talk to me. And you begin to fuel that and it keeps building. And then suddenly, maybe days later, you're in the cafeteria. And with all the hundreds of people in that cafeteria, somehow your radar is up and you know when she walks in. You've got hope. You're focused on some kind of connection, something that's going to go on. You've got that crush going on. That's what that's called. I don't know what guys call it. We just like, I kind of like her. But girls call it a crush. There's something that maybe that first time you're in touch with the power and intensity of hope. And you begin to just marshal your resources and your actions and your thinking and you get your friends to pass notes and you start to do those kinds of things that show that you're interested. And you hope that that'll be reciprocated. Now that's just kind of a kid's example, but we have that as, as Christians. We know when, when, what is your hope? When I ask people, oftentimes I'll say, uh, when we talk about the hope that's in heaven for us, I say, what do you want? What are you hoping God will do? And, and a lot of people say, you know what, I just want to hear at the end of my life, my hope is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I like that. I mean, that's my hope too. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If, if I was going to give that a visual, that'd be like looking at El Capitan. I think I have a picture of El Capitan. Um, El Capitan is this granite face that rises 3,000 feet uh, in the, from the floor of the Yosemite Valley. It is the place where climbers go and they're climbing, scaling the face of it. It's both exciting, exhilarating, and extremely dangerous. But man, when I think of like, what's my hope? My hope is 
to, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. My hope is to scale El Capitan. But if you go to Yosemite Valley, if you've been there before, you know that El Capitan isn't the only thing going. You know, in fact, that there's other aspects of the valley. Here's a shot from Vista Point, and you can see to the right, Bridal Veil Falls. And in the middle, maybe hopefully you can see that. Yeah, there's Half Dome. Managed to get a picture where the guy had nicely labeled everything in case you haven't been to Yosemite Valley. There's Half Dome in the middle, Vernal Falls, Nevada Falls. The Merced River runs right through that valley. Is this not a marvelous just aspect of God's creation? If you haven't been to Yosemite, go. It is just too, too awesome to not behold that at some point in your life. But look at the grandeur of that photo. You got, we started with El Capitan. Man, I wanna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's so much more when it comes to understanding the hope that's in heaven for us. It's more than just El Capitan. It's more than just hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, we're gonna start to unpack that. I wanna look at three key areas when we talk about the hope in heaven for us. The first thing, when you get to heaven, and by hope, when, when scripture speaks of the hope in heaven for us, it is talking about when we have completed this life, when the work that Jesus came to do, that he came to accomplish, finally has its full fruition, finally has come to completion. This life is past, judgment is past, and for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we will be now with him in eternity. That's the hope, we will hear Lord willing, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's so much more that scripture begins to unpack when we talk about hope. So let's look at the first thing. The hope of heaven for us is to be in God's presence. When we talk about hope, we talk about being in his presence. Look at the, the visual, if you will, that Revelation is talking about. Revelation 21, John has seen a vision. The angel is showing him what is gonna happen. And in verse 20, chapter 21, verses one through three, he writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the hope of heaven here? The hope of heaven is that that presence of God, that Adam and Eve were the only people that ever experienced it, the physical presence of God in the garden, and none of us ever since have ever experienced that. That will be renewed in the new Jerusalem. There is a time where God will be with us and we will experience him as we never have in this life. <laughs> that should just be like, I, I, that is mind-blowing to think about us being with God. We, you know, the scripture uses so much imagery because it really can't convey the reality that we'll experience. But it's meant to just grab hold of our hearts and our minds and to wrap us up and to say, this is why I've called you. Not just you know, we, we do things in this world to honor God and the callings we have. If we're a parent, if we uh, have a job, if we're a neighbor, all these things are God-given callings. We want to honor God with that. But all of that with the goal to realize that hope eventually, that once again, we will be united with him. That is so powerful. It's meant to work there. It's meant to inspire us. It's meant to enable us to rejoice and to help us to live that way. Why is that important for us today? Because let's be honest, there are times where we don't feel 
God's presence in our lives. We know our theology. We know that if we belong to Jesus, he has put his spirit in us and that spirit is living and active and it speaks and the Lord from his spirit is speaking to us and is testifying that we belong and that we have a hope and a future. All those things are real. All those things are good theology and yet at times we find ourselves distant. Maybe there's things going on in your work right now and they're creating distance between you and God because you don't know what God's up to. And you've been faithful, and you've been prayerful, and you've been giving, and you've been doing all those things, but instead of promotion and blessing, you're experiencing heightened attacks in meetings, and they've just written a review, and you don't like, where did this come from? This isn't even me. What's going on? And you're like, Lord, I've got people praying about this. Why am I not seeing the level of blessing that I thought you give to your kids when we pray. Man, I'm distant from you. Lord, I've just been, I've, maybe some of you are just dealing with a burden of, of illness or a relationship that has just been fractured for so long. And you just think, I don't see how God's making a way in that. I, I, don't, I don't even know where he is in that. Can I first um, say that you're in good company? Can I say that there are times in the Psalms where the psalmist didn't know where God was in their life? Psalm 88 concludes with this, darkness is my only friend. There just is a place where I'm just so distant from God. Psalm 22 is more of a prayer. Verse 11, do not be far from me, God, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. There's times when the world is squeezing us into its mold, when stuff is coming against us, when people are absolutely working your nerves. You're wondering, God, where are you? Where is your presence? This reality, this eventual reality of our hope in heaven says we will be in God's presence. But even more importantly for the stuff we're going through today, his presence is here. The question for us is, are we actually practicing his presence? Are we doing the kinds of things that allow us to, you know, he is the lifter of our head to lift us up over, so we're looking over our problems and not just staring down at them, to see his face, to feel his embrace, to know his power. And it may not happen in an instant, but it will happen over time. Are we practicing his presence? Some of you uh, might have heard or read the book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's by a monk, a fellow named Brother Lawrence, who in the 17th century was a soldier, and he decided that that soldiering wasn't for him, and so he became a monk and lived in a monastery. Because he wasn't educated, they had him essentially cleaning dishes, working in the kitchen, cleaning dishes and baking cakes. That's what he did. But he learned, and he wrote this very small book about how to practice the presence of God, how to enjoy the Lord, how to experience his love each and every moment. Now, it's something that's so practical that people like John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and A.W. Tozer, some of you have read his wonderful theology, they commend this book to the saints. It's not a theological thing on other you know, aspects of Catholicism. It is a way that you get in touch and understand the presence of God. Here's what Brother Lawrence writes, one, one excerpt. He says, it's not needful that we should be doing great things. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake in the frying pan for the love of him. And that being done, if there's nothing else to call me, I find myself in worship before him. Him who has given me the grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier. I get up happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Isn't it interesting? 
when we're in the presence of God, how his presence, how his glory, how his love can transform any situation, any reality that we think we are facing. So the question, the exhortation, the goal, the prayer is, will we come into his presence through prayer? Not only through prayer, as, as, as Brother Lawrence practiced, but through fellowship. Well, I, I, there, from time to time, I go to some of the, the men's fellowships that are here at this church, and I see guys that are upholding one another. They are being, when one guy shares challenges he's got going on in his life and the other guys are encouraging him with the word of God and they're praying for him, you know what's going on? That man who is sharing is experiencing the presence of God in the form of fellowship, in the form of care, in the form of compassion. Sometimes practicing the presence of God isn't just you all by yourself, but it is here. One of the reasons we get together here on a Sunday is to experience God in a way that we cannot experiencing him in our own prayer closet or in our own lives. I'd love to get Pastor Toby and all the other band members to come to our house and do a jam session. We could have great worship music. Probably not going to happen. But I can come here and be ushered into the worshipful presence of the Lord. Practice the presence of God. Whatever you're facing, let me just encourage you to let the Lord be the lifter of your head and turn you to ways that you can actually see him. See as Jesus did what the Father is doing. Jesus said this in John 5. He says, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can, only, he can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. My prayer for me, my prayer for you, my prayer for this church is that we would only do what, the Father, what we see the Father doing. And not to be distracted as, as the Colossians were getting. Not to let the world press us into its mold as it so desires to do. Everybody's got a better idea for how to live your life than God, seemingly. And they're not shy about telling you about it. But we should only do what we see our Father doing in our lives. What his word tells us to do. Problem with my friend and the conversation that I talked about earlier is that he was listening to other philosophies. Things other than the word of God. But if we would listen to the word, which is the living Christ, according to 1 John, we would know his will. We would be able to do only what he wants us to do, and we would experience his presence and his peace. So when we talk about the hope that's in us, it's with the presence of God. When we talk about the hope, it's also that we are made perfect. Presence, now we're being made perfect. What does that mean? When I talk about being made perfect, how many of you today or sometime this week were acting in a way that was less than desired by the people that were close to you? Okay, there's a few brave souls. All right, I'll even cop to that. Why is it that whenever I'm preparing a sermon, poor Vicky has to sort of get the extra brunt of my own worldliness? Sorry, dear. Um, I've already confessed. You know, there's just times where you're trying to do the things of God and then you seem to be getting more agitated. Like, what is that? Now, I could spiritualize it and say it's an attack, and and that actually is true. But more importantly, what's really going on is that this imperfect body of mine is still wanting what it wants, still acting in the flesh, still concerned about what people think, and so it's reflecting that. And so I find myself, and you probably find yourself crying out as Paul does in Romans 7, you know, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers us from this body. And so when we talk about the hope of heaven, you know what we're going to talk about? We're going to finally be in a place where we are made perfect. 
Now, I've just given you a small example of how we can kind of get on the nerves of people around us. But some of us, when we're really honest, we know that we have hurt people badly, very badly in our lives. Some, sometimes, every, I could probably interview every person here this morning, and if I asked you what your biggest regrets were, some of them are deep indeed. And they're like, if I could just take that back, I would do so in a minute. We're just capable of doing those kinds of things to people that we love and that we care about. We can do that. That's our flesh. That's that sin nature that God is working on. But when we are in heaven, when we experience that hope, we are going to be made perfect like Jesus. I love what Pastor Toby introduced the worship set with 1 John 3, 2. And that's an important thing. 1 John 3, 1, I'll read you the first two verses of 1 John 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Talking about right now. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What is the hope in heaven for us? Is that we will see Christ, because he's now dwelling with us, as he is. And we will be realizing the fact that we have been made perfect in Christ. Made perfect, sinless, spotless, no longer slave to sin, but now fully able to live in that love and new creation that God has always intended. That idea of being made perfect is announced over and over again in Hebrews especially. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's you and me. The sacrifice that Christ brought made us perfect. When we get to heaven, the hope is that we'll now be able to realize that. Paul, when he said, wretched man that I am, was looking forward to the hope of heaven. He talks about it in Philippians 3.20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, what we're walking around right now, so that they will be like his glorious body. I know about you, I am looking forward to my glorious body. I'm looking forward to being sinless because of what Christ has done. I'm looking forward to not having my sins held against me. I'm looking forward to not hurting people as I've, I've hurt them. I'm even looking forward to not having any more neck surgeries and any more other signs of aging and things like that. That's the hope in heaven, that our lives are transformed inside and out. We are made perfect in him. What do we do with the fact that we're going to be made perfect? I read you 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. Here's how John follows it up. He said, okay, verse 2, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, so what? Why does that make a difference for how I live? Verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In other words, I can't just camp out where I am in whatever level of obedience I have or disobedience and say, well, I can't wait for the hope of heaven. I can't wait for the hope of heaven, but it doesn't give me a license to just stop living in holy obedience to the Lord. In fact, if you want to know the Lord more and more in your life, who he is, if you want to see his power more frequently demonstrated in your life in all ways, in terms of being able to forgive people, in terms of having breakthrough, in terms of being able to make sure that you have the patience to bear up under things it comes out of your sense of walking with him and following him in obedience. And Sanjay spoke a lot about that, hatred of sin last week. And Pastor Manuel, a week before that, was talking about slaying your giants, or a few weeks before that, was talking about slaying our giants of sin. When we do those things, we show that we belong to Christ. 
we show that we desire to be made perfect. And by his help, he is aiding us to do that. Here's the test. How do you know you're making progress? Well, hopefully the things that you're wrestling with today aren't the same things you were wrestling with six months ago or a year ago. Now, if they are, chances are you're officially and theologically called stuck. We don't want to be stuck. We don't need to be stuck. Part of the reason we we get stuck is because we are either confused about what God wants is, is saying, or if we're really honest, we actually don't want to receive it. And so we get stuck. And Jesus is saying, get unstuck. You will be made fully perfect when I return. But guess what? My spirit is in you to will and to work for my good pleasure so that you would bear fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. That's what Paul was talking about. That means getting to know the Lord more and more. We can be unstuck. The question is, do we want to be? And as I I commend those other sermons to you that talk in some of the specifics about how to do that. But we are being made perfect. What is the hope? The hope is that we have the presence of God. The hope is that we will experience being made perfect in him. And the hope is that the people that you care about, the people that are in your circle, the folks that are in your extended family, the colleagues that you have at work, the neighbors that you live around, those people will be in heaven with you. The folks in our neighborhood as a church that we are reaching out to, however we're doing that, through the homeless ministry, through prayer ministry, people continue to come walk into this church almost every week for some need, for some prayer. This is a, a, a mission outpost, if you will. Our hope is that those people will be in heaven with us. Now, am I just like making that up? No, I, I think, <laughs> look at, if you look, if you know your scripture, you know your gospels, you know that in, in Luke, Jesus himself tells the parable what is known to us as the shrewd manager. It's about a manager who was misusing, abusing the possessions of his master, and so he's getting fired. So in verse 3, it says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Still thinking, that's good. And so what he does is he begins to give discounts to the people that owe his master money. The guy who owes him oil, he says, knock over 50% off. It's like, what a deal. The guy who owes his master weed, he says, take 20% off. And he's doing this. These guys are happy to do it because they pay less. And then the manager himself is looking to make sure that he has a place to go. Then the master, it says in verse 8, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. And here's the punchline from Jesus in verse nine. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the world knows how to use wealth for its own interest much more than we do. We've been given wealth, we've been given resources. You know, you hear it often spoken in this pulpit as time, talent, and treasure. We've been given those things. The question is, why are we to, how are we to use them? What are we using them for? And Jesus is telling us that we use them to advance his gospel for time and eternity, to share his, to share our faith, not only in word, but in deed. Believe me, when, if you've got work colleagues that you're witnessing to, chances are they're not asking you during the break, hey, I noticed there's something different about you. Would you please tell me all about Jesus Christ? Because they just sort of divine that somehow you know him in a way that's saving and I need. Now, we'd, we'd great to hear that, 
My favorite, one of my favorite stories in Acts is the Ethiopian eunuch that the Holy Spirit leads Philip to talk to. It's like, what a great evangelistic opportunity. Go speak to him. He goes up to the chariot, and, and the guy is reading from Isaiah. Have you run into any work colleagues that happen to be reading the Bible just because they're interested? Probably not. What is God doing? He doesn't mean that you have any less a call to share your faith, but you're sharing your faith by what you do, by your attitudes. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. People won't want to hear what, what the hope of the gospel is in you until they see how it impacts your life, until they see how you respond to the crazy boss, until they see that you have peace for the next reorg that's been announced and even before the last reorg actually gets completed. There's all kinds of craziness and confusion that goes on in a workplace. But how do you react? Do you have that peace of Christ? Do you know that you belong to the Lord? Do you have his presence? Do you know that even through the challenging times he's making you perfect? Do you know that people are watching you because they don't have it figured out either? And if they're really honest, they are looking for a solution and they haven't found it yet. And so nothing is random. When you go to work tomorrow, it's not random. When you go to work tomorrow, if God has blessed you with that, it's not by accident. Be prayerful for how he would lead you. Know that, that he is using you in many significant ways, knowing that the people are what matter. When you use your time and, and your resources, what are you using it for? Are you giving to kingdom building activities? Are you giving to things like uh, we support as a church, Compassion International? Compassion International is a, is a ministry that reaches out to poor children in some of the poorest, most abject places of poverty in this world. And it provides them with a sponsorship so that they have food, shelter, so that they have an education, and also a spiritual environment where they can grow up to know and love Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that separates Compassion from some of the other organizations, nonprofits that do this kind of thing. We give that because we want to build that kingdom. You know, some of the people that will welcome you into heavenly dwellings, you won't meet in this lifetime. Some of you may, if you're sponsoring kids for compassion, for example, you may never meet them. But they are your spiritual children because of the resources that you're providing, because of the prayers that you are praying. They're your spiritual kids. And guess what? As they grow up from youth to adults, and if they start sharing their faith and seeing people in their, in their area, in their community coming to Christ, they become spiritual parents, which makes you spiritual grandparents. So isn't God great for how he moves these things and how he raises up so much blessing from just a little few fish, a couple fish and a few loaves, metaphorically speaking, the money that you use to support whatever missionary activity we pray that it'll provide the increase. You will be welcomed into eternity by people that you have never met because of your faithful use of time, because you prayed for them, your resources, because you gave, um, and because of the talent, maybe you're helping them in practical ways. People that we see are our hope in heaven will have God's presence, we're made perfect, we'll see people that we've been praying for by his grace. Is that not a hope that fuels you, that fires you up? Is that not part of the grandeur when we're talking about what this is gonna look like? If you're, if you're bogged down, if you're like, Lord, I just feel like a Colossian right now, I'm confused, I got all kinds of crazy philosophies, I'm feeling distant from you, 
What can, Lord, show me? And he starts to show you the hope of heaven. He starts to show you that he loves you, that his presence is always with you and will come to fruition. He shows you that whatever you're battling, however many times you have to call your sponsor, however many support groups that you're going to, there will be a time where you will be made perfect and you'll be made like Jesus. And the people that you're worried about, that you're praying for, those grandchildren that seem so far from God, so much prayer has gone into that. By his grace, you will see them in heaven because of what you have done, what he has privileged you to do. That is the hope of heaven that, that Paul is talking about, that he needs, he says, this should fire you up, Colossians. Fire you up. The world offers nothing in comparison to these things. Man, camp out in your mind, camp out in your meditation, camp out in your prayer time this week and say, Lord, let me just dwell in that future event called the hope of heaven. Man, it will change your life. Let us do that as a church. It'll change our church. Yeah, I could leave it there, but I won't because I'm mindful of the fact that we have jobs to go to or we got family situations that are challenging that we're gonna return to later today or we've got a neighbor who just got a new dog. Um, We're praying for the new dog. You know, we got things that are just gonna start working on us again. So what do we do with that? Let's look at verse 11. When Paul says, he says, um, You know, we live a life, he says earlier than that, we want you to live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. And then verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. I said when we started, what's the thing Paul wants us to know? Is that we have a hope in heaven. What is it that he wants us to receive? God's all power so that we have strength and endurance so that we have specifically great endurance and patience. So why do I say receive it? Because there are some people here that you are still trying to live out the call that God has in your life in your own strength, with your own thinking, with your own emotional energy. And if you're really honest, you realize that some of these situations and challenges that you're in are so prolonged and such a beat down in certain places that you're finally admitting that, you know what, maybe I don't have enough strength to actually pull this off. I'm speaking to some of you especially that are, are the go-to people in whatever group you belong in. If it's in your, in your company, you're the go-to guy, you're the, you're the engineer that they always call up to fix it. You know, you're the one that's going to get the space shuttle from somewhere in the orbit down safely landed. You're the EMT that makes sure that the person is taken, you know, out of some injury and safely given to the hospital. You're the go-to person. But you, inside, know that you don't have the strength to pull that off. Any of the callings that God gives us, calling to be a parent, calling to be a grandparent, calling to be an employee, calling to be a boss calling to be just a a, a friend. None of the things that God calls us to do can be done in our own strength. And we would be foolish to continue to attempt that. But we try to puff ourselves up. We look at people, heroes. We we go to movies. We see, you know, Superman type guys that are always taking it, taking it to the bad guys. Like, yeah, that's, that's the Christian life. No, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to depend on the strength that God provides, to receive the strength that he offers. 
and to say, Lord, I need your strength. Humble yourselves and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I, how, how can I pull this off, Lord? You know, sometimes the Lord will show you how much strength you need by just letting you mess up on a little thing, something, that, a layup, a metaphorical layup. That should be easy, but you clang it. It doesn't go in. It goes off the bottom of the rim and you lose. Like, man, I can, I can, I can make a layup. No, <laughs> you need God's strength. So receive his strength. Know that it's his power that provides it. When it talks about endurance, it's, it, there's a military connotation. It means to hold the ground that you've taken against all onslaughts of the enemy. That's what it means to endure, to wait patiently for the Lord. You may not see a breakthrough but just today, but just being able to stand there on your two feet, being able to, to respond to your spouse with love and kindness when they keep throwing judgment and dissatisfaction and criticism at you. You're doing that by God's strength. In the, my prayer is that in the fullness of time and, and through whatever means God has that that situation would change. But you're able to stand there. Man, if you are a parent or a grandparent, you are, nothing shapes a person's prayer life like having little folks that you're responsible for in some way. Maybe you're a godparent, but I'll tell you, that brings you to your knees. You so quickly figure out what you don't know or that you don't know. And so you say, Lord, help them. I love how Job, at the beginning of the book of Job, he's praying for his children. He's acting as a priest on their behalf. He's saying, Lord, don't hold their sin against them. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, protect them. Lord, watch over them. Lord, I wish I could rescue them, but I can't. I don't have the strength for them to have the things that I want them to have. Only you have that strength. And only you, Lord, can keep my hands lifted up in prayer like Aaron and Hur did for Moses in the battle. Only you can do that, Lord. So would we receive his strength? Will you humble yourself and say, Lord, whatever I'm going through, whatever I don't think, whatever I think I'm concerned is gonna take me under, I need your strength. I need your endurance. It says it's all power according to his glorious might. This is a promise. Whatever strength you need to be God's person in the situation you're in, he will provide it. Do you believe that? He'll provide it. I, in my Bible reading, as we've been reading through the Bible in a year, recently came across 2 Kings 4. It's the story of the widow with oil. I'll read a portion of it. I want this to sink into you to see how much you know that God loves us and provides for us. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And she kept pouring. And she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. How long did the oil last? Amen? How long did the oil of God last? As long as she kept bringing jars, and then it stopped. 
how long will the power that you need be provided by God? As long as you keep bringing to him your challenges, your issues, your situations, the goals that you have. And when you stop bringing them, even then he is gracious and will still seek to provide. But this side of heaven, his oil of strength is not going to run out. Because we will always have something new to bring to him. Always be in need of his strength to live the life that he's called us to. Always require him to make a way where we don't see a way. Keep being, be like that widow. Keep bringing those jars. Keep bringing your needs to him. Keep asking for him to make a way. Keep asking for his strength to be steadfast in whatever you're going through. And only in that time where God calls us home, when we're again in his presence, will that oil run out. Because we won't need it anymore. So please don't leave here today thinking that God doesn't care or that he won't provide what you need. He does. This is what Paul is writing to the Colossians. He says, I want you to know the hope in heaven that awaits you. I want that to motivate how you're living because it's all about, we live according to our goals. And I want you to realize, look, I know it's hard, but you have every ounce of strength that you need to be the person that God has called you to be. Will you receive that? I want you to receive that. And so I just close with those two questions, if you will. Our hope is more than we can ever imagine, and it's guaranteed. The hope in heaven, by the way, is often called an inheritance, something that belongs to you by right because of what Jesus did. It cannot be taken away. Our hope is more than we can ever imagine, and it's guaranteed. The question is, is there something right now that has your attention more than heaven, more than the hope that awaits you, something that's a distraction, something that just you're so focused on that you can't see what awaits you? Man, deal with that. The second question is, every calling that God gives us can be done, but the question that I have is, are you relying on him or do you want to continue to trust in your own strength? Much depends how you answer these questions in the days ahead. Much depends for us as a church how we answer that question. Do we live for the hope of heaven and we will rely on the strength that God provides? I hope we say yes more and more with glad hearts, amen.